things like people get one of those sheds that you can get at, um, you know, Menards or somewhere, put it in their backyard, and they'll have somebody living back there. And they don't consider that homeless, but they maybe have electricity for lucky, <laughs> but they definitely don't have any running water or, you know, plumbing or anything. And um, so, again, that would count. And so just people are sort of trying to make do. Rural homelessness is on topic with IU. My name is Kenny Smith with the Media School at Indiana University Bloomington, and I'm speaking with Laura Littlepage, a clinical associate professor from the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs at Indiana University. Professor Littlepage, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. You have a broad and long range of experience in research and policy analysis, and you've just recently produced this new paper titled Homelessness in Greene County, Indiana. A very interesting paper for the Center for Rural Engagement and the O'Neill School. Before we dive into the substance of the paper, though, I wonder if you would explain to us a bit about what the Center for Rural Engagement at Indiana University does. It's been around a few years now. Um, the main idea was that there are so many things going on on campus, so many departments that have, um, you know, students interested in things that have uh, all kinds of assets that they can bring to our surrounding communities. And there wasn't um, much of that happening and what happened was sort of ad hoc, but the, it was an intentional effort to focus on rural counties and to see what, um, you know, resources and classes and whatever can be brought to those counties. And they usually will pick one um, that they work on for a year. Now they sort of leapfrog it. So they'll have one, it doesn't mean like if they go into the next one, they completely forget about the previous one, <laughs> but but they have one that, and so um, a couple of years ago now, because COVID delayed the whole thing, um, but Green County was their area of focus. And one of the things they do as part of that is they go out into the community and they um, basically try to find out what are the issues? What what are, you know, what are the assets in your community? What are the issues? What's concerning you? And homelessness in Green County came up a few times. And so um, that was one area and they, they, Put together this whole sort of um, list and faculty can look and see if there's anything that fits so like we had another faculty who did a capstone this summer um, on a um, farmer's market and i can't remember which county it was but it was one of the rural counties and help them to try to figure out how to um, you know market market their market more and to help it become uh, you know just more well known and those kind of things and so that's just a small example but but it can be that the nursing school has done really cool things there have been environmental things that have been done and so the idea is to bring the, re really short, to bring the resources of the university to rural, our, our surrounding rural community. And so beyond the outreach aspect from the university perspective, what does a paper like this, Homelessness in Greene County, Indiana, where does that fit in into um, the civic-minded elements of the O'Neill School? Um, well, and see, this is one of those things where COVID got in the way. So the idea for this project and the ideal was going to be that we would, we were supposed to have it done last summer, and we would culminate it with a meeting in Greene County of the stakeholders, and then try to get them to sort of move the ball down the road. Um, but with COVID, it just wasn't gonna work, because you can't do that kind of thing over Zoom. You really need to have people in the same room. And so um, so we went ahead and finished the report because it was already delayed a year, and so I wanted to go ahead and um, share what we had. And the idea is that um, hopefully that um, people in the community can take this and there's some suggestions and things that will be helpful to them. But um, part of the goal for this is that there was a lot of anecdotal conversation about it, but you can't really address something if you can't measure it, right? If you don't have some idea about it. And some of the stakeholders we interviewed 
didn't think they had a problem at all. And so part of it was that I could, yeah, yeah you really do. <laughs> and so maybe you should think about doing something about it. Um, it doesn't need to have, doesn't have to open a shelter. There's a bunch of other things you can do, but, um, but yeah, so that's sort of the, the goal is that the community hopefully will do something to address the issue. You say quite openly and specifically in the paper at one point, to see this, you need data, and and that's where you're going with with a, a study like this. The problem you end up spelling out is quite stark, I would say. It sounds like we have people living in some very trying circumstances in Greene County. It's kind of easy to bring to mind, I think, some sort of understanding of of people in an urban environment experiencing homelessness. But how is the experience of homelessness different in a more rural context? Uh, well, it's definitely it's hidden. It's more hidden for sure. Um, because uh, I mean, I do a lot of work in Indianapolis, and, and there are you know whole camps, and there are you know people under the bridge, and the, there are people who are you know pretty obvious. And so people, um, even though that's only like ten percent of the people experiencing homelessness, are, but that's visible enough that everybody in the community recognizes that it's an issue. Pretty much everybody. Where in rural areas, people will be maybe in a camp, but in the woods, so people won't see them, or they might be in a building that's either either abandoned or a trailer or something, but that is not what they call fit for human habitation. So what that means is if you have, um, you know, no running water, no utilities, or you have a big hole in your roof, or if you have broken windows, or you, the HUD considers that homeless. The people living there don't consider themselves homeless um, or living in your car, but it's just not as obvious as in rural areas, I mean, in urban areas. Um, so it's harder for people to acknowledge that it's an issue. And just like you don't see a lot of mass transit or perhaps uh, other public services like, say, specialized me medical access, uh, large libraries, things of this nature in a rural setting, is that what we're seeing here when you mention hidden homelessness in a more perhaps even isolated, uh, unincorporated community even? Yeah, well, there's not, like I said, there's resources. And uh, you mentioned library in Indianapolis. That's one place a lot of people hang out, which was where I would hang out if I was experiencing homelessness, right? They're hoping until like 10, it's warm, they've got books and computers and so, but, um, and and so Green County has a few libraries, but they're very small and it's not something that you could, you know, it's not like some of the really large ones. Um, and yeah, I, well, transportation is always an issue, right? But especially in somewhere like Green County, no public transportation and the, it's a large, it's a large county. And if you take from like Bloomfield, Linton and Jasonville, it's very spread out. So even if you were trying to do something um, in Bloomfield, it would be hard for the people in Linton or Jasonville to even access it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, this is a side note, but I, I teach a grant writing class and I had students that worked on a grant for, for Greene County. And it was actually for the sheriff to have the, um, oh, the thing is basically that shock your heart if you die, if you're having a heart attack. You know, Defibrillators, yeah. Defibrillators, yeah. So because it's such a spread out county, that ambulances take like 20 minutes to get anywhere. But the sheriff can usually get there faster because they're they're already patrolling, they're already out. And so it was to write a grant to get three of those so that to help with that. So it just illustrates how spread out and how it's really hard to address something when you have really low density of population. Rural communities make up most of the nation in terms of the space, but just mm -hmm. under 20 percent of the population in the country and those population numbers and, and that ratio is fairly uh, constant in terms of Indiana as well. I think it's 21% of, of Hoosiers live in, in what is defined a rural area. So how generalizable, as we start to dive into this piece now, how generalizable would you find that the particular information you're sharing in this paper 
could be examining this southwestern Indiana County in terms of explaining or understanding or even planning policy for other regions in the state? Well, I, I will say that um, Washington County, which is um, is still in um, southern Indiana, but um, I had a capstone class that did something similar to this. Um, now, they didn't go interview people at um, an organization like with a food pantry or anything, but they did the rest, very similar things, um, and talked to stakeholders and looked at secondary data and those kind of things and found pretty similar results. So um, oh, it's only two, but um, it still shows, I think, that you know, probably gonna, it's probably going to be pretty similar, especially, it, I mean, in the in the rural counties that just don't have um, anything near them. I mean, if you think of, so we'll have, like Monroe County has got some services, you've got Terre Haute, you've got Louisville, but there's a bunch of counties in between <laughs> that, that don't have anything. And so um, I, I would think it would be fairly generalizable to those counties. And what you do have sometimes very few and far between, I understand as well. One of one of the problems you mentioned here is access to affordable housing in Greene County. And this this is talking about, or you're citing rather a, a 2019 study that looks specifically at that problem there in Greene County. I assume that's no better considering the housing crunch that the state, the country have experienced in light of the pandemic. Is that right? Oh, definitely, yeah. And I mean, they Greene County has um, some special challenges even with everything else. So. They have Crane that's near them, the Naval Base, and the people there have funds. They get even sometimes subsidized to help pay for housing if they're serving. And so they have basically, they can pay more. And then you also have Monroe County, which is the most expensive county in the state for housing. There are people who are moving out of there trying moving towards Greene County. So you've got sort of Crane moving this way, Monroe County moving this way, and squeezing anything that's available and raising the prices. And so, and then you have the per capita income, and you've got the numbers in the report are not very high, so they can't really attract like new development because most of the people couldn't afford. I mean, a new house, if you build a new house now, the even the reasonable ones are like you know two fifty three hundred thousand dollars, and if your income is forty thousand, that doesn't work. <laughs> so, um, and yeah, and there's not hardly any apartments, which makes it harder to um, just for for having something affordable for people. Your standard perpetuating of the haves and have-nots sort of circumstance, I hear you say. Just touch on the methodology here a bit of what you're using in this paper. Tell us a brief bit about the sort of analysis that you're conducting. Okay, so so we, um, as I mentioned, we got, um, did a little review and saw like the other reports that have been done and brought that in. Um, we looked at data from um, the McKinney-Vinto, which is the schools. Um, so uh, HUD housing and urban development actually defines homelessness as either being in a shelter transitional housing or somewhere not fit for human habitation but department of education includes all those three and adds people who are doubled up so somebody if you say you know you get evicted and you've got three kids and you're living with grandma for a week and then you're living with your aunt susie for two weeks and then you're living with you know cousin joe the school department of ed wants to count them as homeless because they provide transportation so they don't have to change schools every time they change the school district and they also bring some more resources to bear to try to keep the kids, you know, and, and there's tons of research and things why they should do that. It's much, much better for kids to have that stability. Um, every time they change a school, you know, you drop further behind. And so that's why it does that. So, so they collect data on the children. Um, and so that we were able to use that data in Greene County and show a little bit over time that the numbers are, um, you know, not great <laughs> for Especially for a fairly small county, fairly small school district, and and even we looked at things like free and reduced lunch, 
about half the kids get that in Marin County. So that shows people who might be sort of on the precipice, you know, having struggling some. Um, and then the main uh, data that we we're able to get that wasn't secondary, well, we did some interviews with stakeholders um, to get their views on what they thought was going on in the community. And so that went from, um, you know, like trustees to um, superintendents to um, church people, um, just try to get a wide, wide range of other nonprofits that are in the community and then uh, to see what they saw as an issue. And then, then we did surveys at the Family Life Center, which is in Green County and um, it, it has a food pantry, a very nice one actually they have outside because of COVID and they have um, refrigerators and they, they have meat and I mean, it's not just cans of you know corn or something. And then they have a closed pantry, which is organized very nicely too by, by gender, by size, by age, you know, so it's like you're going shopping. So it's, it's a nice um, place. And they um, have a lot of people obviously that come through. So we went out there and surveyed an outside physical, which was interesting, you know, people who um, just came to the pantry and asked um, them the questions. And, and again, I would think probably maybe only a couple of them would have self-identified as experiencing homelessness, but we took the definition of HUD and of uh, Department of Ed and then said, Yes, and we tell them that, but this would count as somebody who's experienced homelessness. So that because it's really hard to find people. So normally you try to find people who are experiencing homelessness and interview them, but so we try to do the flip side and find somewhere that we thought people who might be would go to get some assistance and then try to interview them and determine if they were experiencing homelessness. So that's how we got the I think the, the neediest part of it. You say it's very hard to find people, and you mentioned a few moments ago this term, the hidden homeless. I'm guessing that's an even bigger challenge in terms of doing research or, or, or providing services in a rural community because everything's so spread out. Unless there's some nuanced definition to the phrase hidden homelessness, it, it just is sort of an obvious problem, right? Right. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I, I mean, it, in some of the places that we had heard anecdotally, and even when we get, I think we had um, one in the group we talked to, or things like people get one of those sheds that you can get at, um, you know, Menards or somewhere, put it in their backyard, and they'll have somebody living back there, and they don't consider that homeless. But they maybe have electricity if they're lucky, <laughs> but they definitely don't have any running water or you know plumbing or anything. And um, so again, that would count. And so just people are sort of trying to make do. And also, I heard of one. This is an anecdotal one where somebody had a shed like that, and somebody was living in it, and they didn't know them. They weren't a relative or anything. <laughs> they were very surprised. <laughs> Something they didn't use very often. Somebody was staying there, so. Um, and so people will try to find I said, ways to you know, cope with this. So, um, and it just, I mean, it wouldn't make sense even for them, most people who experience homelessness in a rural area to deal with it the way they do in urban areas, just because of the, um, the nature of the community. You're talking about some of those anecdotes and you share a few more of those in the study itself. I wonder if you'd tell us a few more circumstances that you find that people are finding themselves in. Well, I mean, one I remember was someone who had been living in a trailer until it slid down into a creek, which the visual of that is, <laughs> wow. uh, and they were trying to get it, I guess, hauled back up or whatever. Um, I don't know what that would do to a trailer, and if you hauled it back up, what shape it would be in, but um, that was, yeah, and and definitely a lot of people in, in um, situations where the housing just wasn't in very good shape, like broken windows, holes in the roof, um, no utilities, things like that. And um, so that makes it, you know, um, not fit for human habitation if you if you have if you don't have solid structure. Um, now the thing about 
something like some of those issues is in a, a rural community that there can be sometimes um, get help from, say, a church group or uh, even one thing we mentioned in the report is they can try to form some kind of group to work on houses so they keep people from becoming, uh, you know, literally homeless, right? Where if you can get um, volunteers together and get some donation supplies, you can fix a roof, you can patch windows, you can put in a floor. If, you know, some people had floors that were like, they were going through the floor. You can fix those kind of things. And um, in rural communities, at least from some of the conversations we had, I think they'd be more open to that than like opening a shelter or something. And, and you can't shelter your way out of a problem anyway. I mean, the, the main thing that people who are experiencing homelessness need is a home, right? And so if you can keep them in the home that they have or fix up, say, another one that's abandoned or whatever, but keep them housed, it's much, much better for them, right? It's better for the community. Both. So um, because once somebody gets into shelter, it can be very hard to get them out just because of all the barriers that um, come with that. So they may end up having had an eviction if they were renters. They may have have an arrest record um, that then makes it harder again if you're trying to rent something. And so, um, or if you own this property, it's much better for you to keep it than to let it go into foreclosure if you can get the help to fix it back up. So, I don't know. Did I wander off too far? <laughs> I think that's a, a, a really cogent way to describe. There's different ways to look and examine the issue and the circumstance as varied as they can be, but also how there are many different types of solutions that can be put into play as well. When I read the paper here, one of the first things that really stands out is how the number of students experiencing homelessness has jumped quite significantly in the last few years. It is, I'm sure, an unnuanced question on my part, so my apologies, but do you get a sense of why that is? I mean, that's not something that we have from from that data. Um, so I think those kind of things are pretty for different reasons. Um, there, some some people like even Rose, you know, they they could have something like a house burned down or whatever. That can be a small part of it. Um, but for the um, there can be um, issues in families, um, and so why they end up having to leave wherever they were and those kind of things. So um, I think from some of the stuff that I've looked at previously on McKinney data, there's a widespread of um, reasons that. The children end up in those situations, and you have some in there that they are unaccompanied youth. So you even have some that are not part of their family. They're 17, 18, and they're still going to school, but they're on their own and they're, you know, handling however they can. But they're experiencing homelessness, and so that's a very different than say a family with small children. And the thing about the numbers too with the McKinney Vento is that when you show those numbers, that doesn't those are school age children. They could have siblings who are under school age. And so it could be a larger number. Um, and it doesn't include the parents. So most of them have at least one, if not two parents that are, you know, part of the family. So if you take those numbers, you can, they get bigger pretty quickly. If you think about it, of total people from that, but we don't have, we don't have numbers to know. So we can't say this child has two siblings or two and three. So if I, if I had that, I would add it in, but I don't, but, but you know that there probably are some at least. With these things in mind, one, the challenging lives that some people are, are just tasked with living when they're experiencing homelessness, and two, the number simply of children that you're just mentioning here. Uh, we're talking about these are people, young people, in less than desirable circumstances. Even if you do have a warm, safe place to stay tonight, tomorrow might be a different place. Stability is so important, as you mentioned. With these things in mind, the first sentence of your conclusion, I think, is quite powerful. You just simply say, hey— 
This is a bigger issue than the local government and agencies understand. What do you take from your perception of what they see before you give them this paper? Well, from the conversations that we had, we had things where people thought of like one or two people in the community as experiencing homeless and sort of, again, the person that may have an alcohol problem or mental health problem and that are more obvious and that's the one, one or two people. And so, um, and they don't really consider people staying living in unfit housing as homeless, right? Because they're in a house. <laughs> so, um, so it, that's why the hidden homeless is so, it's so hard for stakeholders and for government local nonprofits to recognize it because um, they don't see it and they may not even understand the definitions that, or if somebody's couch surfing that they're considered homeless because again, they have a roof, they have a door, or some kind of roof. Um, they're not homeless. So yeah, that perception problem, I think that's why one reason we wanted to do this was to raise that and then hope from that, that some of the stakeholder people that are involved um, in this will, you know, get together. I mean, I would like if they had some kind of task force or something where they talked to each other about these and said, okay, what are some things that we could do to try to deal with it? Because of the circumstance and because of that general misunderstanding of scale and scope that you're reflecting in Greene County, uh, is yours here the sort of research uh, that is being undertaken in other parts of the state, or should it be? So like I said, we did something similar in Washington County, um, and then um, and I've done similar research in Indianapolis for a long time, but that's, again, it's a whole different thing because it's urban areas. But um, right now, there's not that I know of in other um, counties. There's not something similar, but um, but I haven't asked CR um, rural engagement people if they have anything else, you know. But they probably would tell me because we've talked quite a bit about this and what some next steps would be and things. So I think they would have mentioned it, but, uh, but there are other researchers besides, you know, through... Center for Rural Engagement or O'Neill. So there could be. I just don't know about it if there is. And now that you're putting this research into the hands of those people in Greene County, what's been the feedback you're receiving from those stakeholders you mentioned? So one of one of them, one was Ada, I think it was the county commissioner, was pretty adamant, like, we can't open a shelter. And I'm not saying you should open a shelter, but that was like the first reaction. We can't, we don't have the funds, we don't have the support, we're not going to open a shelter. And and again, I, I wasn't saying that it was, you know, Yes, you, you could. That's something that could be helpful. But there's other things you can do. And I think the, the biggest step is just to recognize it and then talk about it as a community, what you can do, right, instead of saying what you can't do to start with. <laughs> let's, let's think about what we could do um, and and go from there. And, because I said, shelter is not always the best option for anyway. And, and if it's going to be have pushback from the community, it's not worth that fight, right, if there's other things that you can do. And this is often where that big government, small government debate kicks in. You say there are other things that can be done. What is to be done? What can be done? Well, I said just first to have the group of people or stakeholders in this, and that can be schools, that could be faith-based, that can be um, government, I mean, other nonprofits, and talk about this and see who they see. Um, and um, hopefully from there, do something they call a health hub, which the idea of that is that at least there's somewhere where um, either physical or virtual location, but people can find out what are all are the resources. Because Green County does have resources. They have churches that have um, that will provide like a night. They have they have a lot of food that they provide. They um, have there's one that does um, a thing with the laundry where one day a week basically they make the laundromat free and it's a partnership with the laundromat. You know, so people can get their clothes clean. They have like the family life center. They have resources, but 
a lot of times people don't know about them. And so, um, and they have, they're part of 211, but um, the 211 system that for this area is focused in, in Monroe County and they don't have tons of things listed in Greene County. And um, and it's not just like the name of it or whatever, but, but really more focused on Greene County and what they provide. Um, and then if it was a physical location, would be sort of the next step. So you have sort of virtual, then you have physical where people could drop in and you know, maybe even have case managers there and talk to them and figure out what, you know, resources they have, what they're eligible for, what they could get help with. Um, and then sort of the next step after that, so sort of a spectrum, right? And the next step would be, then that would even, you could make it like a day center where people could come and they could get their mail and they could take a shower and they could do their laundry and they could get job counseling and, and that. So, um, like I said, there's a spectrum and they could start here, at least talking to each other <laughs> and figuring out, you know, what they want to try to do. And then, like I said, maybe start with the informational piece first and then progress if they want to. So, yeah, it's a question now of needs and will and resources. Do you project seeing those things coming together in a way that at least helps alleviate or mitigate some of the problems? I don't know. That's hard to say. Um, I think, especially right now, I mean, we, you know, with COVID, uh, in a way, there is some money, extra money coming through for some things that maybe they could use some of those funds to get started on this. That's a possibility. Um, but there are also tons of other needs because of COVID in the community, right? And so um, to decide where to use those funds and what's the best use of those funds, I think, um, is going to be a challenge. And so, but that it, it just makes everything harder to do anyway, right? You wouldn't want to do a drop-in center now. You wouldn't want to start that now <laughs> in the middle of a pandemic, right? So... And that people are focused on all these things about the, you know, the kids in school and with the masks and whether they have to get shut down and go back to virtual. And there's just so many things people are focused on. I think this may take a little while for um, it to get addressed, but hopefully um, it will. And and Center for Engagement does try to keep some of these things alive and, and have other groups come and work on some other aspects of it and things. That's part of what they do is to not, not a one and done, right? So um, hopefully... Well, something can happen response. And we like to try and end this program uh, with a little bit of a silver lining. So now that we're getting a better understanding of the facts on the ground there, uh, what sort of positive action do you see might be, even if it's not immediate, that might be the things that happen in the next phase of this? I think I mentioned it before, but it could be a possibility would be the idea of trying to prevent people from becoming homeless and focusing on that. And um, and so maybe having some kind of uh, volunteer effort, you could have maybe people who are retired from working in the trades, and then maybe they work with some youth groups who have like energy <laughs> um, to do things, and then to do some of these repairs and, and work with the community. They're also, Green County has a very high rate of um, buildings that are uh, basically not being used. So um, they're out of the housing stock. It's like almost, that's like 15%. So there was probably, if those some of those could get repaired, they could bring it back into the housing stock, and that could help these too. So, um, so like I said, it doesn't answer doesn't have to be a shelter. I mean, everybody thinks, okay, you've got people experiencing homeless, open a shelter. But there are a lot of other things that can be done, and um, I think something like that, where because again, people are I think are more receptive to something because you'd see the result and you know the person housed and in their house, and that's good, right? <laughs> Rather than sometimes I think with PSG with shelters, people feel like it's always ongoing and never-ending and, and what are we accomplishing right except you're keeping people from dying but yeah you know so 
um, especially in the winter time. But, but um, yeah, I think having something else where people feel like they're doing something constructive could come out of this. Professor Laura Littlepage from the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs at Indiana University, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And we thank you for joining us as well. For more information, follow us on social media. On Topic with IU is on Facebook and Twitter. You can subscribe and download this podcast from services like SoundCloud, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Anchor, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Just search On Topic with IU on your favorite podcast provider. From Bloomington, Indiana, for On Topic with IU, I'm Kenny Smith. <laughs>